1: 18-
2: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello. I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia Pacific region. With COP26 and high fossil fuel prices, energy is back in the headlines. And Russia, as one of the world's largest producers of hydrocarbons, is part of the conversation most recently in Putin's refusal to expand oil production to ease global prices. The world's coming up on three major transitions, peak use of fossil fuels, renewables competing with non-renewables, and a warming climate, likely, likely to surpass the 1.5-degree threshold set by the IPCC. What do these trends mean for Russia? A great power, a major oil and gas producer, an Arctic country covered in permafrost, and an economy with strong, but increasingly outdated levels of technological development. Klimat, Russia in the Age of Climate Change by Professor Thane Gustafson and published by Harvard University Press, examines how Russia might react or be forced to react to a changing environment and energy market. Thane Gustafson is Professor of Government at Georgetown University. A widely recognized authority on Russian political economy and professor at Harvard University, he is the author of many books, notably The Bridge, Natural Gas and Redivided Europe, and Wheel of Fortune, The Battle for Oil and Power in Russia, as well as Russia 2010, and What It Means for the World, co-authored by Daniel Jurgen. joined today by my friend and colleague, Yvonne Lau. Yvonne, would you like to say a few words about yourself and your interest in Russia?
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much, Nicholas, for having me. It's really great to join you and Professor Gustafson today on the Asian Review of Books podcast. I'm Fortune Magazine's Asia Markets reporter based here in Hong Kong. I write about everything from IPOs, fintech, green tech to crypto and China. Uh, Back in 2017, I actually began roaming around Eastern Siberia and the border towns along the Russia and China border. I became really fascinated with uh, Russia's post-Soviet economic development and its growing ties with China, particularly in the energy sector. So I'm very excited to hear from Professor Gustafsson today.
1: Today, the three of us will talk about how Russia will have to change as the world warms. As the world shifts to renewables, will Russia be able to keep up? As Arctic ice melts, will Russia see opportunities in shipping, and will climate change ever get greater salience among the Russian public? So Thane, I want to start with perhaps a a big picture question, which is, in short, what threat does climate change pose to Russia from an environmental standpoint?
3: I think it's useful to divide that question in two halves, Nicholas. The first aspect is external impact, and then the second is internal inside Russia itself. The internal, of course, is very much present on our minds when you look at the map, 11 time zones, a huge territory, 70% of which is covered with permafrost and an incredibly long Arctic coastline. It's clear that the internal effects are likely to be very substantial, particularly in the form of melting permafrost and possible impacts of changing rainfall on Russian agriculture. Those are the two big negatives that loom in the minds of Russians. And then one big positive, which is the possibility that with rising global temperatures that agricultural productivity might increase. And then as Ice melts along the Arctic Ocean. Why, there is the possibility of the opening up of a major new shipping route. But in my book, Klimat, I argue that at least between now and mid-century, it's the external impact that is going to be particularly sizable for Russia and on the whole negative. Russia is indeed a major exporter of hydrocarbons, about um, four-fifths of its export revenue comes from oil exports, and then the remaining fifth from natural gas. These account for roughly 60% of Russian export revenues. Russia is acutely dependent on them, and particularly the Russian state. You could visualize the Russian economy as a gigantic uh, recirculation recycling machine in which the export revenues are then recycled to support the social welfare system and, of course, the political system under Putin. The prospect is that if there is a peak in oil demand, why Russian revenues from oil could decline, perhaps as a result of lower prices in the external market and also rising costs at home. So those are the two big areas of prospective impact on Russia from climate change between now and mid-century.
1: And I'd like to quickly just touch base on on one thing that you said, which is, you know, Klimot is premised on the idea that the energy transition away from fossil fuels is happening, which I think sometimes, as, you know, maybe climate pessimists, um, some think, some kind of despair about, we're not moving fast enough on energy transition. Um, but where can we see this transition happening?
3: The energy transition is not yet really underway. It is, is, shall we say, under a beginning. We're starting to see the impact on consumption of coal in the decade of the 2010s. Uh, But all of the forecasts agree that we're going to continue to see an increase in oil consumption worldwide most likely through the end of the 2020s and into the early 2030s. The role of gas, particularly as a bridge fuel, is going to increase for considerably longer than that. Gas demand may peak in the 2040s. That's not yet clear. Uh, But the energy transition is still at its early beginnings.
0: Yeah, Thane. I'd actually first like to ask you about coal, uh, one of the world's earliest sources of energy. Uh, while many developed nations today are turning away from the commodity, uh, Russia's coal exports are set to rise. Um, could you talk a little bit about, um, you know, Russia's Asia bet? Um, the government is betting that you know, coal consumption will grow in Asia, and they're reportedly spending more than $10 billion on railroad upgrades to boost coal exports to Asia. Um, can you talk a little bit about this phenomenon?
3: Very important question, Yvonne. To put this in the context of the Klimat book, um, the question that I ask is, what alternatives does Russia have to oil and gas export revenues? And so there's a whole chapter devoted to the coal industry which is in itself a, a very interesting story because it's an industry that has been effectively rebuilt in the Putin years. It collapsed after, with the collapse of the Soviet Union. Up to that time, coal had been primarily used for domestic consumption. The industry has been reoriented toward exports. And now the domestic market for coal is is declining. It's become a regional fuel domestically, confined largely to the eastern part of Russia. But the export part has boomed, particularly toward Europe for the time being. But the prospect is, and the direction of policy is, toward Asia, as you quite rightly pointed out. The only problem with that is that at this moment, the largest suppliers of coal out of Russia are in the center of the country, and particularly in the uh, in the basin known as Kuzbas, which is about equidistant from the European and Asian markets. So, as you look toward Europe, the transportation system is adequate, indeed it's underused, but as you look toward Asia, there is a need for much more railroad capacity, and that's a very high priority project under Putin to develop that railroad capacity from the Kuzbas, from the center of the country to the Pacific coast. Uh, That is proving problematic. The railroads are not financially very, uh, very sound. Uh, They are investing slowly. Putin shows considerable impatience with this. He wants the movement to go faster. The coal industry is dissatisfied with the rate of progress, and there are bottlenecks. Nevertheless, that is the direction of movement of the Russian coal industry.
0: Mm-hmm. And as we see uh, global banks and insurers turning away from you know, financing and insuring coal, in part, you know, due to um, increasing public pressure uh, in Russia, which institutions will be left standing to finance and insure uh, these Russian coal mines? I don't
3: think that the decline of coal inside Russia is necessarily the result of financial pressures directly. It's simply a reflection of the fact that Russia is very largely, four-fifths of the territory, is a gas-fired economy. And whereas in Soviet times, it was still very substantially coal-fired, why, it has become increasingly taken over by gas. Uh, That's why I said that coal is increasingly a regional fuel. Uh, Consequently, while there is an effort to invest in the coal sector, uh, it's primarily, as I said, directed toward exports. Uh, For this, there is financing from private interests. um, And particularly, the effort is to develop more local sources of coal in the eastern part of the country that won't have as long a transportation um, tra- transportation line to um to to the pacific coast
0: mm-hmm. and perhaps we can transition a bit to oil now uh you're writing klimat that russia will be um, one of the biggest losers in the world's Green energy transition, uh, oil prices will drop and drilling in places like the Arctic will prove to be too costly against the backdrop of declining oil prices. Uh, new oil fields in Siberia won't be able to be developed with further without further state subsidies. Uh, what then, in your opinion, is the future of oil in Russia if the issue isn't supply, given that Russia has major oil reserves and, at some of the lowest costs in the world, but uh, the issue is really demand?
3: Let's go to coal. Before we, excuse me, let's go to oil before we leave coal, though, uh, just to comment on the prospects for exports to Asia. The strategy uh, that the Russians have developed banks on the idea that although coal demand may decline in Europe, indeed, they are expecting that it will decline in Europe, why they see booming prospects in Asia and particularly from China. And so I hope we come back to the question of the demand for coal in China and how this affects Russia's strategic plans for coal exports. But on to oil. The main thing to bear in mind about Russian oil is that most of it comes out of the northern part of West Siberia. And as time goes by, this has been one of the most prolific oil provinces in the world ever since it was first discovered and developed in the 1960s. The West Siberia has been producing for a long time and the output of conventional oil from West Siberia is starting to decline. Now the Russian oil industry has tried to modernize itself with considerable success so they use up-to-date techniques such as fracking, such as horizontal drilling. They're increasing, increasingly using microelectronics, uh, seismic visualization, and so forth. All of that has increased the efficiency of con- conventional oil production, yet the contribution of West Siberia, which is about 60% of Russian oil production, has been declining slowly. So it's a rear guard action in conventional oil. So, in response to this, the Russian oil industry has been talking about unconventional oil, that is to say, what we call in the United States shale oil, or uh, perhaps better named, tight oil. And that requires looking at greater depth for um, deposits that may exist in Russia, but so far the Russian effort to develop those has not proven very successful yet. So that's a wild card, and it's not yet clear whether there will be a new generation of unconventional production similar to the United States. At this moment, it hasn't happened yet. Uh, The next area, prospective area, for Russia in the long term is offshore, the Arctic offshore. But here's an area that the Russians have never been very active in before. They were reliant on foreign technology, and their efforts in that direction have been hampered by Western sanctions and also by the high costs of Arctic offshore oil. So at this moment, much of the effort in Russian oil is being directed at the what you might call the near offshore, the Arctic coastline. And for your listeners who are tracking this, the magic word to keep in mind is Vostok, that is the Vostok oil Um, company, which is being developed by the Russian National Oil Company. Now, what I'm painting here is a picture of gradually rising costs. This puts Russia higher on on the cost curve of world oil producers. And if we're talking about a world of perhaps peak oil demand and declining oil demand starting perhaps as early as the 2030s, why Russia's competitive edge with its higher cost profile would decline relative to increasingly desperate oil producers around the world, Saudi Saudi Arabia in the first instance. Think of OPEC now as the original original, uh, members, OPEC+, plus, plus a dozen smaller producers that have joined in These are acutely dependent. They're mostly state-owned oil companies, acutely dependent on oil revenues. They will be fighting for the remaining barrels if world oil demand begins to decline. Now, Russia will always produce oil and it will always export oil. The question is, what revenues will it get and what will be the share of the uh, the Russian government going forward? That is the big question.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you delved right into my next question perfectly. I wanted to ask you, Thane, um, you know, what do you think will happen to Russian state revenues and the Russian economy if peak oil really hits in, say, 2030, 2040? Um, what's the Russian government's backup plan, if they have one at all?
3: Ivan, great question. And the, the, uh, the, the main purpose of the Klimat book is precisely, in fact, to ask the question, what alternatives does Russia have uh, in the event of a decline in Russian oil and gas revenues uh, beginning perhaps in the 2030s? I see two phases ahead. Uh, One, during the decade of the 2020s, oil and gas demand worldwide will remain very strong and in fact will be increasing. Russian hydrocarbon revenues will remain very strong. That will produce a natural tendency for the established interests that are involved in hydrocarbon production to say we're fine and to take an optimistic view that may put decision, that that could put decision makers to sleep. That was the case up until about two years ago. And then all of a sudden the peak oil demand, the climate change narrative started to come to Moscow and decision makers have in effect woken up. Not all of them agree with the narrative. Many of them are still in denial about the potential consequences for Russia, but there is a swirl of debate in Russian official circles right now. This is a very recent development just in the last couple of years. What set this off more than anything else was the prospect that Europe will start imposing um, carbon import taxes, the so-called carbon border adjustment mechanism known now as Cbam. The threat of this is so immediate that it caused official Moscow to wake up and really take notice. So climate change has come of age as a political issue, at least among Russian elites.
0: Yeah. And Thane, in your book, you also... Um, You know, quote an official from Moscow's Skolkova Energy Center who said, let us be frank, the Russian economy and government system as a whole are not ready for decarbonization and the energy transition. Then I believe you quoted Chubais who said, it's not Russians that don't believe in renewables, it's that they're uninformed and there are too many myths. Uh, You know, what's the current state of Russia's renewable sector, Uh, solar, wind, hydrogen, and what policies are in place to support this development?
3: That brings us back to the question of alternatives, now that the Russians are increasingly aware of the challenge. We've already talked about coal. Let's turn now to renewables. That is indeed the big story around the world and the story of the dramatic decline in the costs of solar and wind, first and foremost. There are, of course, other categories of energy production that are considered renewable, In particular, nuclear, which has been an area of strength in Russia over the years, going back to Soviet times. And also hydropower, which has been a big story, again, throughout the Soviet period. And hydropower remains very important in the east of the country. But renewables. This is an area that is entirely new in Russia. It has been promoted by some prominent personalities, and you mentioned Anatoly Chubais, who is considered the father of Russian privatization going back to the 1990s. He has been practically a one-man promotion machine for renewables. He was, until recently, the head of a innovation company called Rusnano, the mission of which was to promote new energy sources and new technologies across the economy. And Chubais used that as his bully pulpit, you might say, to spread the message about renewables. So far, it's a very little effect. And the main reason is that Russia, as I mentioned, is a gas-fired economy. And gas is so plentiful and so cheap, it absorbs 70% of total Russian gas production. And there is no competing against gas in most of the major uses, and particularly for power, so there would be niche opportunities for solar and wind. There is practically speaking no rooftop solar, for example. There is very little discussion of distributed energy uh, systems based on renewables, and there is no place for um, grid scale level renewables in the Russian power system. So the outlook is very, very limited indeed. It is being pushed to a very minor extent by the Russian government because of the possibility of an export market for solar and wind. But the solar in particular is so completely in the hands of the Chinese that there is very little prospect of Russian exports in solar technology. So renewables are a story that has not happened and is not likely to happen in Russia.
1: slash NBN
2: fifty to get fifty percent off.
1: I mean it's it's a it's a fascinating prediction because you're basically saying that because even as the rest of the world moves past fossil fuels, as renewables become competitive with fossil fuels globally, because Russia is so because oil well, because fossil fuels will always be so cheap in Russia that it'll never be able to renewables will almost never be competitive in Russia. And so it'll be end up being left behind. And I guess is is Russia alone in being in that position or or are there other countries that face a similar threat I guess
3: Russia is indeed in a very unique position in having the oil and gas resources that it does uh, and in having an economy that even at the time of the breakup of the Soviet Union was already adapted very largely to a hydrocarbon export system, but also domestic consumption of hydrocarbons. The hydrocarbons are cheap, they're fully available, and the economy is adapted to them. As Putin himself says, we have a comparative advantage here. And he argues that it is, at least where gas is concerned, it already has one of the lowest carbon footprints in the world. So this is very much the core of Russian. Energy policy, but also climate policy, going forward.
1: And I, I would, I do want to move on from the energy conversation. But we, but we'd be remiss if we didn't mention um, the last, uh, let's say, non-renewable yet carbon-free form of power production, which is nuclear. Um, and Russia actually has a nuclear industry, except it doesn't actually make power plants nuclear power plants in Russia, I believe.
3: Well, it does actually, Nicholas. It has a, a very strong uh, civilian nuclear power sector. Uh, this too fell on hard times in with the breakup of the Soviet Union, uh, but it has been revived. Uh, it was placed under the very capable hands of someone who uh, then reorganized the industry. Uh, he oriented it in the first instance toward an export business, uh, which has been doing well. There is not as much demand for civilian nuclear power inside Russia for the the reason that I said, that is to say the dominance of gas in the domestic market. Nevertheless, there is a substantial uh, uh, nuclear fleet inside Russia. Uh, The skills have been maintained, particularly thanks to that export business. Uh, and actually, the bottom line is that Russia, with its present generation of nuclear power plants, uh, that is to say, the the large traditional power plants that we are accustomed to, uh, is really the only country in the world at this moment that can produce, that, that can uh, build and uh, operate a nuclear power plant on time and on budget. Uh, That's remarkable compared to the decline of nuclear capability, civilian capability, in the United States and France and the UK. Uh, So Russia has a comparative advantage there, which, of course, is aimed at developing countries, uh, which have shown considerable interest. But the prize, most likely in the future, is going to belong to smaller reactors, which are under development in a number of countries, that may be the wave of the future if there is ever a renaissance of nuclear, for the reasons you've just said. That is, it doesn't produce um, greenhouse gas emissions.
1: So now I'd like to kind of move on to. We mentioned at the kind of very beginning of this interview, some of the internal effects of climate change, and and the two that we highlighted were agriculture and shipping. Um, I'm going to try and ask about both of those things um, in one question. But um, on the one hand, you, mean, you, you seem quite pessimistic about how Russia's agriculture will um, be affected by climate change, um, basically, that it, it, it really does threaten, I think, Russia's agricultural production. Um, so that's obviously a downside. But on the other hand, you see uh, a lot of Russian officials, maybe more climate, some of the more, let's say, climate skeptics ones, being very excited about the prospect of opening up the northern shore to shipping as Arctic sea ice goes away. Um, I guess kind of in your kind of broad perspective, how do you kind of see the balance of these various internal effects of climate change um, on the Russian economy?
3: Well, let's talk first about agriculture. I'm far from pessimistic, actually, Nicholas, because this this too has been uh, a rather remarkable success story, particularly when you compare Russian agriculture today to the disaster story that it was in Soviet times. The agricultural sector has been considerably reorganized Uh, 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 during the Putin years. And in particular, we're starting to see the emergence of very large uh, agro complexes that are oriented toward export, particularly of grain. Russia is once again, the world's largest exporter of wheat. In round numbers, Russia's making some $25 billion a year from exports, largely of grain, uh, and by uh, within another decade, that could uh, conceivably double. The big question ahead is what the impact of climate change could be. Um, The Russians themselves are very much uncertain about what the implications would be. There is a band of very productive agriculture, largely in the south, obviously, of the country. Uh, You might think of it as a band, which has pretty much optimum conditions. As global climate warms, uh, that band would tend to move north uh, at the northern end uh, because of higher temperatures, um, areas that are not currently under cultivation Uh, could be um, uh, sources of new production. On the other hand, at the southern end of that band, uh, there are likely to be difficult drought conditions. And so that could be conceivably a wash. Um, There has been a good deal of speculation in the Western media about the impact of melting permafrost, particularly on that enormous band that makes up some 70% of Russian territory would melting permafrost open up areas that would be available for cultivation? Most Russian soil, soil scientists are dubious about that. They point out that permafrost is largely a mixture of ice and sand uh, with very little buildup of organic material. Unless you have that, you're not going to get very fertile production. But the big bottleneck there is the big constraint is labor. The Eastern two-thirds of Russia are losing population rather than gaining population, and labor is very short. So there would have to be massive in-migration from other places, and it's not at all obvious where that would come from. So for Russia to continue that boom, which has been such a prominent success story up until right now, that would require uh, a... uh, Uh, shall we say, a a more favorable uh, expansion or a more efficient expansion of uh, reclamation, irrigation, more efficient practice, and so forth. Um, And so far, conditions have not led in that direction. So that's a question mark, a question mark on a success story so far, but a question mark going out for the the, uh, uh, remaining three decades. I mentioned a, a number there, $25 billion a year. Uh, how does that compare with Russian oil and gas export revenues? It's about one-tenth, Nicholas. That's the, that's the headline. And even if agricultural exports were to double in the next decade, uh, that still doesn't amount to an alternative to a potential decline in hydrocarbon export revenues.
1: And it kind of sounds like none of the potential future options are going to be great replacements for the loss of oil and gas re- export revenue.
3: That's the headline. Uh, mm-hmm. Russia is first and foremost based on a hydrocarbon model. And if that hard hydrocarbon model comes under question, it's the entire basis for the Russian economy and the Russian society that really comes into question. Now, as I've said, Russia will remain an exporter of oil and gas, but under potentially less profitable conditions and with the share of the Russian government considerably diminished. Uh, Now, you mentioned um, the Arctic. The northern coast, uh, several thousand miles of uh, Arctic uh, coastline, uh, is melting. Uh, It's melting two and a half times as fast as, or rather, temperatures are increasing two and a half times as fast as in the average for the rest of the world. Um, There is major investment going on there. And in particular, one of the most interesting stories under Putin, which is the rise of LNG capability. And the idea there is that as the ice melts, as the Arctic Ocean coastline opens up, uh, you will be able to expand what the Russians call the Northern Sea Route, Uh, the, the primary destination being uh, of course, to Asia, LNG is the uh, the uh, the major vehicle that the Kremlin is counting on for an expansion of natural gas exports to Europe. Uh, to sorry, to Asia, and that has been so far a remarkable story of entrepreneurship, led by a private sector company, not Gazprom, but a private sector call a uh, company called Novatech. Which is a effectively a new startup.
0: Mm-hmm. And uh, I actually wanted to save this question for last thing, but um, you know, since you mentioned LNG and the sort of new uh, northern sea routes, uh, can you talk a little bit about, I guess, the status of you know, the power of Siberia pipeline and um, Russia and China's relationship in the LNG sphere?
3: Well, the champion of pipeline gas, historically, from the beginning, has been the company called Gazprom. And Gazprom's specialty, its DNA, so to speak, has been the construction of the production of gas and the construction of pipelines, or rather the operation of pipelines, for export and supply to the domestic market. In other words, very largely concentrated in the western third of the country. Gazprom historically was not at all enthusiastic about developing a new generation of pipelines to the east, uh, but uh, it was persuaded finally to develop something called the power of Siberia. The negotiations with China, as Gazprom itself will tell you, were not easy. Uh, In some respects, the power of Siberia project is some 30, has been some 30 years in the making, and the last 10 years in very intense commercial negotiations. The result of that is pretty clearly that Russia is not making very much money from power of Siberia. So this is as much as anything a political project. It's a symbol of Russia's growing commitment, the pivot to the east. The question is, will it develop from there and in particular compared to LNG? The big thing to watch is whether there will be a power of Siberia too. The uh, model that the Russians are putting forward, so far with no acceptance by the Chinese side, is a new pipeline that would run from the traditional center of gas production in West Siberia, and then it would run to the southeast, conceivably through Mongolia, to directly to China, Uh, or conceivably by a a more roundabout route to rejoin the west-to-east pipeline that crosses China. Either way, the idea is to be able to draw gas from West Siberia, which would give Gazprom the possibility of swinging between the European market and the Chinese market, and thus getting uh, the best possible commercial leverage. Uh, So far, there has been no agreement, and in particular, the idea of a Mongolian route appears not yet to have been accepted by the Chinese. But that's one major development to watch in order to be able to forecast future trends on that front.
0: Mm -hmm. And since we're now on the topic of China, uh, given that Russia and China... Are really continuing to deepen their ties on the energy front, um, and you know China has outlined their own ambitious climate goals. Uh, this might be a difficult question to answer, but you know is there any potential for the two countries to, um, you know, really work together on issues of climate change and conservation, particularly, um, you know, in eastern Siberia and northeastern China, where they share such a long border? Very
3: little, Yvonne. Uh, the uh, the two economies. Uh, are more competitive than uh, complementary in the area of energy. Uh, Nuclear power is a good example. The Chinese are developing their own capability and will be increasingly competing with uh, Russian civilian nuclear power. Uh, We've mentioned coal, where the Chinese remain, of course, major producers of coal. Uh, The One area of complementarity uh, that is uh, likely to remain in the future and continue to grow uh, will be gas. Uh, But there the Russians face considerable competition, particularly for the LNG market. Um, uh, Where the northern sea route is concerned, uh, the main interest for the northern sea route for the Chinese is the possible transit to Europe. The the, uh, Russian destinations along that sea route are of less interest to the Chinese. Um, as far as investment is concerned, uh, the Chinese uh, style is to, um, is to work through their own companies and to have management control to bring labor in. Uh, but that formula has not uh, gone very far in the case of, of Russia. So this is a partnership that is overwhelmingly diplomatic and political, uh, but as far as its economic consequences are concerned, these so far have probably been fairly disappointing for the Russians. The Russians, uh, Russia does not loom as large on the Chinese economic radar screen as the Russians would like, and the likelihood is that that's going to continue to be the case in the future.
0: Mm-hmm. And uh, finally, I want to turn the page a little bit and touch upon climate uh, sentiment in Russian society. You allude in your book that um, in Russia, the issue of pollution really looms larger than um, you know, climate change. But we saw how powerful uh, people's voices could be, for instance, um, a few years ago when residents uh, at Lake Baikal protested the Chinese water bottling plants. Um, whether the protests were fueled by environmentalists environmental concerns or anti-Chinese fears is a separate issue. But I'm wondering, um, you know, can Russian public pressure sort of force the government's hand and, um, you know, force the state to take climate change more seriously?
3: Well, I think that Russian officialdom now takes climate change very seriously. But insofar as it uh, poses a threat to Russian commercial positions outside Russia, uh, this is particularly apparent, uh, well, it, it's, it's apparent across the entire range. Uh, for example, the prospect of carbon border adjustment taxes uh, would hit the Russian steel industry particularly hard. Um, the aluminum industry has major assets outside the country that conceivably would be vulnerable to pressure along um, the um, ecological lines. Uh, In all of these respects, so far, it's the external issues that loom largest on the climate change front. For the Russian public, it's largely pollution issues and things like waste disposal, for example. uh, Those have brought uh, demonstrations in Russian cities. Putin has vowed to improve the handling of urban waste. Um, But um, that's the sort of thing that gets a lot of attention. Periodically, forest fires, but forest fires, unlike California, for example, burn in areas with very few people and that doesn't get the urban population terribly excited. Uh, When you look at areas of uh, demonstrations and protests, uh, it's the issue of corruption uh, that people tend to be aware of in Russian public opinion on the popular level. Uh, and uh, not yet the issue of climate change.
1: So I think this is a great place to end our interview with Thane Gustafson, author of Klimat, Russia in the Age of Climate Change. Thane, I actually have one final question for you, which is uh, where can people find your work and what's next for you?
3: Well, thank you for that question, Nicholas. The, uh, my work's available, first of all, through Harvard University Press, uh, and uh, I have now published three books with uh, Harvard Press. It's been a wonderful, uh, a, a wonderful uh, publisher and uh, uh, very active. It uh, you might say that these three books are in effect a trilogy because they tell the story of this extraordinary hydrocarbon empire uh, that is uh, uh, that that essentially is is Russia's. Uh, top card in the world economy. Uh, As far as my future work is concerned, I've become increasingly interested in the uh, contrasting performance of the five major emitters, including Russia, but also the United States, in dealing with climate change challenges. So that's my main direction of work going forward.
1: You can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R.I. Gordon. That's N I C K R I G O R D O N. You can follow Yvonne Lau on Twitter at Yvonne Lau. That's Y V O N N E Y L A U. You can go to AsiaReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. The Asia View Books podcast is on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to continue to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for an interview with Amish Raj Mulmi, author of All Roads Lead North, Nepal's Turn to China. But before then, thank you so much, Thane, for joining us today.
3: Thank you, Nicholas, and thank you, Yvonne. It was a pleasure to be with you.
0: Thank you so much, Thane. It was a pleasure. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.